Father God, before we do anything else, before we ask you for anything, we want to say thank you, God. Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you that your love never changes and never fails. God, you don't run away from us or cast us off as sinners. Because of who you are. God, you've called us in this life to take joy and struggles and in trials of many kinds. You say that we can have peace in trials because you've overcome this world. God, we thank you for that comfort and that peace, Father, and that confidence that our God is a God who saves, who is strong, who is mighty, and who is more powerful than anything else we can face. Father, we thank you for not allowing us to go through anything that you haven't ordained. And we can't go through anything, God, that you already know that we're victorious. So, Father, I guess tonight we just thank you for peace and for joy even in tough times. God, for being a solid rock that we can lean on. We praise you for that, God. We pray that you would, you forced us to lie down in those green pastures, God. And you quiet our souls that you'd make us take refuge under your way. God, because that's where it's taking us. In the storms of this life and the fires that we go through, God, we have a refuge in you. You're a fortress. God, we love you. Teach us new things today, God. Open our hearts. Open our minds. God, make us soft to what you have to say. We love you, Father. All right, if you have a Bible, open to Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, and we'll be in verse, uh, starting in verse 6, and we're going to go through verse 12. So this is our sixth week in Malachi, as we've been, is it six? Yeah, walking through six weeks, we'll have one more, next week we'll finish up Malachi, and then we'll move into the book of Mark, which we were going to start, but ended up, uh, there's a quote in Malachi, or in Mark, from Malachi, there's only two of them, uh, in all of Scripture. And so that took us back to Malachi just to give uh, a little more background, a little more view, and, and it has been an interesting study. But as we've walked through, just to give you a quick recap, if we go back and look at this conversation that's going on between God and the people of Israel, it starts out and God says, I love you. And we addressed that earlier, and God uses the example of Jacob and Esau. Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. Uh, being Jake, or Jacob, God has chosen to uh, make a people group to be his nation, to be his people, to bless the world. Uh, to bless even us through this nation. And then Esau, his brother, who is the older brother, he says he hates, and it's a rejection of Esau that not so much specifically focuses in on this hate of Esau, but a rejection that highlights the choosing of Jacob, the younger son, for God's purpose. And so telling them, I love you, I have a purpose for you, I chose you, not because of you, but in spite of you, I chose you to use you. 
And so they go on, and the next thing in his address is unacceptable sacrifices to insufficiency of the priest, to unfaithful Judah, and uh, an eschatology view that we talked about last week in God's promise in this answer of, where is the God of justice? Last week we talked about the answer to the question, where is the God of justice, which seems to be the underlying current of the entire book. The perspective of the people during the messenger or Malachi's time is, where is our God at? And so last week was an answer to them in a eschatological view or view in the future. God answers this question that a messenger will come and then the Lord will show up and make right what he created. And then this week we're going to move into an answer to still that question, but it's going to have very practical right then implications for the people that are being spoken to at that time. And so to start out again, we have this uh, this whole cycle, or maybe not a cycle, but a process in which this conversation happens, that there's a statement made, there's then a question asked, and then the answer is discussed. There's an answer that's given, and there's a discussion about what's going on. And so that, that helps us to break up or make clear distinctions on what's being spoken about. So here we have yet another statement that leads to a question that leads to God addressing the people. And he starts and he says, I, the Lord, do not change. And as we've talked about and we'll continue to talk about, Scripture communicates three basic things for us. It communicates who God is, I'm sorry, communicates who man is, and then how we are to respond to that. To God and man, how then do we respond? That Scripture does a lot, lot more than that, but you can break up what you're looking at typically into those three basic concepts of what God wants to communicate to us. And so here we look at it, it says, I, the Lord, do not change. Again, communicating who is God, he doesn't change. He is faithful to his promises, to what he said, to what he stated he's going to follow through on. He's the same God that created, created years before. He's the same God that chose this nation. He's the same God that has inserted himself in their lives or in the lives of their forefathers to fight for them, to protect them. He's the same God that has been followed through on when he tells, he goes to Solomon and we look, we'll look tonight, uh, in Second Chronicles. He's having a conversation with Solomon after they, uh, build the temple and all this goes on. Solomon has a vision that God is talking to him and he says, if your nation is disobedient, I'm going to lead them into destruction. And he does that. Again, God, the Lord, does not change. The situation may change and God may change how he's dealing with the people at that time, but God himself remains the same. Which helps us as, just as we sit down and look at Scripture, or look at Christianity, or look at faith and belief, it gives us a staple. It gives us to come back to, something to come back to, to hold to, the, of an absolute truth. Here's an unmoving, unchanging object. God. And then we can move from there. So he says, I, the Lord, do not change. Going on, says, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Again, he, he makes a reference back to all the way back to chapter 1 as he, as he started this discussion and said, I love you. Israel responds with, how do you love us? And he says, I chose Jacob over Esau. I loved Esau, or I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. Again, communicating this idea that I have chosen you in spite of yourselves. And then God goes back and refers again to them and says, I don't change. If you remember, 
You're the descendants of Jacob and you're not destroyed. In chapter 1, we look at, as God is explaining to them his love for them, what's happening is he's telling them, you're still sustained as a nation. Yes, you've been in exile. Yes, you've come home and things are not what they once were. The temple isn't what it once was. Your community, your system of living is not what it once was when David was reigning, when Solomon was reigning. Israel is not a powerful nation as it once was. God is not using you in the same way that he once was. However, you're still here. I still have a plan for you. And he contrasts that with Esau in the nation of Edom, who were descendants of Esau, and says, I have hated Esau, I have chosen Jacob, and Edom will be destroyed. But yet God will sustain the nation of Israel. And so he says here and reminds them, I don't change. I have kept with my promises. I've kept with the covenant that I made with Abraham, with Jacob, with David, with Solomon that I'm going to sustain this nation and continue to use this people group to reach mankind. Again, this idea that God does not change is probably something that we could take a lesson from as he says, I don't change, not only that, you're not destroyed, because I'm keeping with the divine binding agreement that I made with Abraham. I think it's something that we forget often in our American culture, this idea of a covenant. And we get into, uh, you know, we, we talked about marriage a couple of weeks ago, as this is addressed in Judah as unfaithful, and at a minimum, they're practicing in pagan worship of a sexual manner, and very possibly they're divorcing their wives and they're chasing after younger women. And it talks about God is now unfolding more of his concept of marriage and what he wants that to look like and his desire for. And he, he at a minimum, says divorce is hateful. If not, I don't like this. This is not a godly action. And this idea of covenant is attached to marriage for us. And I, and I think we need to, to remember and continue as we press on in our relationships that when you get married, you're making a divine binding agreement between you, your spouse, and with God. And in the same way that God here says, I am not changing, I am keeping what I've promised, what I've made a divine binding agreement with Abraham, I'm still going to sustain you and use you as a nation. You are still my people, regardless of your actions, regardless of the punishment that I have to put on you. I, this is still here. We are still together in this. And that whole picture of, of marriage plays out in the New Testament in, uh, in Christ and the church, church and the bride and the, and, and the husband. And this idea of covenant seems to, it's very loose inside the church. We talked about a couple weeks ago just the stats uh, among professing Christians. Um, My father-in-law corrected me that that stat may not be true for those who actually follow Jesus, uh, but yet just those who would say, yes, I follow Jesus. But but our, our, uh, our percentage of divorce is higher than those who are not professing Christians. So we have lost this idea of covenant. And, and if you've gone through divorce, I am not trying to drop the hammer you and y'all. I understand things happen. And we had that discussion two weeks ago, and that's not where I'm going. But I do want to highlight today this idea of divine binding agreements. God does not change. We need to take lessons from that.
So going forward, he says, ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. So as he's talking and making this statement, I do I, I don't change. You haven't been destroyed. You're still here. And then he goes on and says, ever since your forefathers, you have turned away my decrees and you have not kept them. You've not been obedient. You've not lived the way that I told you to live. And he says, return to me and I will return to you. And that's the end of the statement. I am God. You're still here. Come back. Again, they're asking the question, underlying current of the whole book of Malachi is, where is the God of justice? The answer to that question, God says, I'm right here and so are you. Now come back. If we look at Second Second uh, Chronicles 7.14, we're going to flip three times tonight and I apologize for that. But if you go to chapter 7, starting in, I say 14, I always say verses and then I'll give you like a major chunk. And so I'll give you the reference and then I'll give you everything around it. So I apologize if you don't like that, but that's what you get. Just for the for the sake of context, because this passage here is taken out of context. Usually uh, someone will read this thing and say in verse 14, If my people who are called by my name, my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Most of us have probably heard that in reference to who? America. If we will just turn from our sins and humble ourselves, God will hear our prayer and he will hear, heal America and bring us once again to be a Christian nation. That is not what this passage is communicating. Again, context is very important as you study scripture. You can't just pull stuff out and slap it where you want to make it do what you want it to do. Solomon is having a conversation with God at this point. And again, the temple has just been built. Verse 11, when Solomon had finished the temple in the, um, of the Lord in the royal palace, he had succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace. The Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Verse 15, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me as David your father did and do not command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne. Excuse me, I think I said did not, but if you do, all I command. Uh, as I have covenanted with David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a man to rule over Israel. Verse 19, but if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands, I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them. Then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them, and I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name, and I will make it uh, I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule, ridicule among the peoples. And though this temple is now so imposing, all who pass by will, will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. 
Again, God is talking and saying, I'm God and I don't change. You have not been destroyed, but return to me because you guys have been disobedient. Again, God doesn't change. He follows through on what he says. He tells Solomon, if you guys turn from it and are disobedient, I'm going to just destroy the place and you're going to be punished. And people will walk by and say, what in the world happened here? And it will be a testament to the fact that they turned from and were disobedient to God. That's exactly what these people are living. They're now living with those ramifications. They get back and God says, return to me. And I will return to you. So there's your statement. It took us a long time to get through this statement. Longer than normal. But you ask, here's your question, how are we to return? Which is a good question. God, what are we supposed to do? Verse 8 says, will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you in tithes and offerings? Again, you have the journey thing in your bulletin about giving, and this is not a giving sermon. So, be at peace and at rest. I'm not going to ask you for money today. Or maybe ever. I don't know. But he says, here's the issue. We've gone through all these different issues of sacrifices and being unfaithful and living in a way that's ungodly. And now we get to a very practical application for these people right now in returning to God. God, what have we? how do we return to you? And he says, right now you're robbing me with your possessions. To return, start giving those. And he says, give your offerings and your tithes. Or how have we robbed you? He says, in offerings and tithes. So let's begin to discuss what that means. This is one of the other flippings, and I'm very, very sorry. We're going to go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14. Now, tithes and offerings are a very interesting concept as you begin to look for in Scripture. How many of you guys know what a tithe is? What's it typically referred to? Yes, Marty. 10%. 10% of what? Your gross income, 10%. Right. There's your staple for what you're supposed to give to the church, and that's godly. And if you don't give that, you're now robbing from God. Eh? Very fun. Um, but if we look at and begin to study this whole concept, if we look at Deuteronomy 4, and it's all over the place. We can find multiple different references, and God is speaking, and God is giving the law, and things are being addressed. But we're going to just build this case from a small portion because I've looked at a lot of them. Uh, and then I'll just make some references so we don't have to flip a lot. But in uh, chapter 14, verse 22, it says, Be sure to set aside a tenth of all your field's produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and the firstborn of your heads and flocks in the presence of the Lord God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to reveal the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant from you, you've been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe, because the place is too far away. Then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, and other fermented drink, which would be wine, and anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes, that that year's produce and store it in your town so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the aliens and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So God is telling us this is what you're going to do. You're going to take a tithe, a tenth of, and you're going to bring it in worship in celebration of what God has done. If you look through the Old Testament, tithe has two different uh, two different purposes. 
One is to rejoice and remember what God had done. Much like Passover, we're celebrating the fact that we are no longer enslaved, that we are a nation of our own, that God is our God, he is fighting for us, and we are successful. Or we are blessed. We have plenty. The other part of that is to take care of the Levites, to take care of the aliens who would be foreigners that wouldn't have what they needed to survive, to take care of widows, and to take care of orphans. Those are your two reasons for them to give what they have. Not only that, but this uh, this reference in Malachi to the tithes and offerings, the offerings, uh, I, I think, from what I've gathered so far, what I've looked at is a technical term for a tithe that possibly the Levites are supposed to give off of what they've been given. And so the issue that's playing out here, you have the nation of Israel, the people, are not bringing, one, to celebrate who God is, and two, to take care of those people who have need, which would, would, would include the priests. So there you have one issue. Another issue that's playing out here is you have the priests who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders, mentors, guides of the nation. Here we're going to teach you how we relate to, worship, know, and live in relationship with God. They aren't following through on what they're supposed to be bringing in worship to God in remembrance of what God has done in taking care of those in need. And so they are falling short of the of, of the heart of the issue of what's supposed to be going on. Yes, Old Testament, you've got a staple of, here's your 10%, boom, this is what you're supposed to give, and they're not giving it, and God is responding and saying, you are robbing God of what is his. And for that, in a second, it says, you are cursed. And as we look at other other places in Old Testament, it just builds more of what's going on. It's, but it's not clear. It's not just God didn't sit down and say, okay, take 10% of your money and bring it and give it to the church. It's not spelled out that way. You have multiple different references of how God wants things to be dispersed and how he's going to make an allotment for one, his priest, and then what they're supposed to do with it, how it's supposed to be collected. And again, this idea of we are worshiping God with this food, with the grain. So I think most of it's it's animals and food. I mean, they're not even showing up with money. Sometimes there's an exchange if you can't carry it, but the concept is not just a clear cut and dry 10% of money here, 10% of money now over here. But he says, you're robbing God and you're not bringing and you're not being obedient to what I've told you to do in worship to me and in taking care of other people. Much like we talked about a few weeks ago, they're talking about the sacrifices. They're bringing blemished and broken and lame and blind things to sacrifice on the altar. And God says, this is not good enough. What you've brought to the table is not good enough in worship to me. And it's a defilement and an abomination. And here he's telling them, you're not even bringing, you're stealing from God. So they say, how do we return? And he says, bring the whole tithe in the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw upon the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So again, very practical address, question, and response. 
I'm God. I'm not. But God says, I'm God and I'm not changing. You're still here. I'm still here. You are robbing from me. Give what I've commanded you to give and I will bless you. Again, how God is dealing with these people is very practical. If you will come and be obedient, I'm going to just lavish blessings on you. I'm going to pour it out on you and you won't have enough to hold it. Which is really cool. What this is not is God speaking to us and saying, I'm going to pour out blessings on you financially because you've given money. If you are obedient to bring your 10% of your earnings, whether that be a gross or a net, whichever you've decided. Sometimes it's an argument. It was in our house at one point. Was this really me? I'm sorry. I didn't think that. All right. I'll go over here and hide. Right there. Okay. But what it's not is if you bring that and offer it, then God says, I'm going to give you that back tenfold. And you're going to walk to your mailbox and open the door, and I'm going to have a check for ten times what I gave to the church. And this is amazing. It's not the concept New Testament church. Tithe isn't even mentioned in terms of God making, okay, this is what you're supposed to do. If we go to our New Testament and begin to try to build a case, what does tithe look like in the New Testament church? We get we get to Acts 2. If you want to flip there, you can. You don't have to. I'm just going to make a reference to Acts 2 and to Acts 5. But you've got the beginning of the church after the day or on the day of Pentecost, and you have all these people gathered together and they're worshiping and they're praying. Verse 42 of chapter 2 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs and deeds were done by the apostles. And all the believers were there together and had everything in common. Verse 45, selling their possessions and goods, and they gave to anyone who had need. New Testament church starts, and as they're living together as a community of God, you don't have a regular, we're taking up our tithes today, make sure you give your 10% so that we can function as a community here. What does it say? They're gathered together, they're living together, and if somebody has needs, they sell it and they provide. They joyfully take care of one another. If we go to Acts 5, you've got uh, Ananias and his wife who sell a piece of land and they bring the money to the apostles. They lay it at their feet and then the apostles address Ananias and then his wife later and say, you're lying to God and both of them drop dead. More than, more than likely, they've sold land and they've kept some of the money. That, that's in the storyline. They've kept some of the money and then they brought the rest and laid it at their feet. And more than likely, it's not stated in the storyline, but they presented the money as if this is all the money that we, we were given for our land and we're giving it to our community or to our family. Do God. And they say, you're lying to God, and they both drop dead. Which is kind of a harsh punishment for selling your land and giving money. The concepts that are presented in the New Testament church are not, here's your 10%, you're robbing for God if you're not giving it. The concept that is presented is if there's a need that you are aware of, you do what you can to provide for that need. And God doesn't like it when you lie to him. So they're they're dealing with what I'm trying to just explain is there's not just a direct transfer. We can't take this passage from Malachi and say, here's your 10 percent. If you don't give this much, you're now stealing from God because that is not true. That's not scriptural. That's not what we pull out. That's out of context. 
for those people, that was true. That's what they were dealing with. That's what they were disobedient with. And God says, come back to me. And I will bless you and I will take care of you. And we will function in relationship as we were supposed to. If we would move this over to our New Testament for us, if we look at Luke 15, which I use this story in our, in our 11 o'clock class, so Steve's going get, to get it twice today. Luke 15, you've got three parables. You've got a sheep, you have a coin, and you have a son. And Jesus is talking with sinners and tax collectors, and Pharisees are listening to this, and they're, they're upset, and they're saying, this man is eating with the ungodly, unworthy, unrighteous people. He begins to address the issue in talking about a lost sheep and talking about a lost coin. And then he gets to a lost son. And he says there was a son, uh, there was a father who had two sons. The younger son came to his dad and said, I want my inheritance now. Please give me my money. And so the dad gives him his money, gives him his inheritance before his dad is dead. Because normally dad would die and then you get your inheritance. But he wanted it before then. He obviously did not care about relationship with his father in that connection. He just wanted the physical possessions that he was going to take. So he takes that. And shortly after, he gathers his stuff, and he leaves and goes to a foreign land. And then he parties like crazy. To the point where he runs out of funds. And he gets to where he has no money, he has no friends, he has nowhere to live, and then there's a famine in the land. And so he's in significant trouble. And so he takes a a job farming pigs and wants to eat from the pig food. And as he's sitting... In the midst of his now new job and new career path of taking care of pigs, which in Jewish culture context, pigs were unclean, and so this isn't a good job. So the people hearing this story are going, this is awful. So he has this new career path of being a pig farmer, and he wants to eat and share with with the pigs their own food, and he has an epiphany. What if I go back and I get Dad to hire me as a servant I will be in a much better position than I am now. And so he gets up from the place where he's at and he returns home. And the father who's standing outside upon seeing his son at a distance takes off running, dead sprint to meet his son, throws a robe on him, sticks a ring on him and they have a party that my son has returned home. And the father reinstates him and puts him back in right relationship in the family of how he was originally intended to function, regardless of what he had done. And the whole story is told in this context of Jesus addressing the Pharisees and addressing this issue that when somebody is lost, when somebody is broken, God has made a way for them to find redemption. I'm not crying. I have like a coffee throat, so excuse me. And just as God is speaking to the people in Malachi's day and saying, come home. Where's the God of justice? I am here. You're still here. Return to me. For us, that concept has nothing to do with money. For us, that concept has to do with the fact that God is God. We are broken. And he is saying, come home. And our response to that is to get up and go home. We we have to physically stand up and we have to make a move in faith, in trust towards Jesus.
And the, the promise is not that, hey, just like in Malachi's day, you've now got just, I'm pouring on the blessings of financial stability upon you. That is not the point. When we return home in relationship with God, He pours out peace, hope, life in full. Not because we're healthy or we're successful and things work out with our family and our kids are great kids and they make good decisions and they're the smartest ones on the block and it all works out for us. That is not the point. The point is when we return home, (coughs) God fixes our brokenness. And we get to know Him. So as we get close to wrapping up Malachi again, just this address of these people, they are struggling in multiple aspects of life of how they're relating and responding to God. <clears throat> but the message of God is clear to them. I am still God and I am still here. Come home to have a relationship and God is going to continue to use them for his purpose in spite of them. For us today, God is still God. He is still here. And is still desiring to use us in his kingdom in relationship with him and loving God and loving people. If we were to make this one about money today, it would not be about, hey, you need to make sure you give your 10% or more to the church. It would be, Do you use your funds in worship to God to celebrate the freedom from slavery that we have in a relationship with Him? And two, do you use your funds in whatever means you have to meet the needs that are made available to you? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for tonight and another chance to come to to worship you, God. We just thank you for your love, your forgiveness. Uh, in all you've given us. God, we pray that this week that you will give us opportunities to <clears throat> to love people, uh, to love our neighbors, to enter in conversation and relationship with them. God, we pray that you will uh, insert us in places where we can be uh, light in the dark world, God. Help us to, to notice, recognize, and uh, take those opportunities to love people, to reach out to them and, and be, <clears throat> uh, be impactful for your kingdom. Uh, God, again, we just thank you for your love, your forgiveness, and all you've done for us. Your question we pray. Amen.